0: Welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones with you today discussing uh, issues of worship, theology, and culture, and continuing a series on the five solas. And I am in the third week of the five solas. So uh, after today, we will be 60% complete. Uh, As I mentioned, this material will be in a book that I will be publishing, and hopefully... (laughs) Uh, presented in a clearer manner. A lot of times when you're discussing it and talking, um, when I'm doing it at least, my thoughts are there, um, but in a book form, they're a little more polished. And so, um, in fact, there are a few things I'm going to clear up today that uh, hopefully will uh, will help. And so, um, we have discussed um, Sola gratia, Sola Fide, and then today, Solus Christus. So, um, the five solas, again, are grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, the glory of God alone. And so, now, you might be thinking, there's five of them. How are each one of them alone? And um, I'll get a little more into that next week, because they are all connected. Um, but, uh, they are they do stand on their own in some ways. And so, today is Solus Christus, Christ Alone. Maybe you've heard the hymn by the Gettys, In Christ Alone. This is a concept that has been around for centuries, since the early church. <laughs> uh, Christ is the reason for the church. He is the uh, central person, the central being in all of the Christian life, and it is Christ alone. So that is the third of the five solas. And so, to begin, let me say this, the gospel must be Jesus and nothing else acts 826 through 40 read that it records an account of an Ethiopian eunuch if you don't want to know what a eunuch is i advise you not to look it up um The Ethiopian eunuch, he was crossing the path of Philip, and he was pondering the text from Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy that uh, is blatantly speaking of Christ. Uh, Many, many people argue that it is not. I do not know how you cannot see Christ in Isaiah 53. Uh, He is all over it. And so this eunuch is reading the text from Isaiah 53, uh, and he's, he's trying to figure out what it means. And Philip speaks... Of this text, and he clearly, in Acts, it says he preaches Jesus. He speaks of the Christ, and the eunuch's life was then changed forever. And the key here is that Philip preached Jesus. And so in a, in a world of, of distractions, of technological advancements, gifted communicators, more educational opportunities perhaps than ever before, competing mega churches, all kinds of things, Christians should only employ the basics. That's really all we need. In other words, preach Jesus. And there's a lot of churches, there are a lot of churches who have moved away from that. And they're preaching other things, sometimes without even realizing it but preach Jesus. He is central. He is all-encompassing. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And he said so himself in John fourteen six. And so the doctrine of Christ alone should be understood not only to be fundamental to the gospel, but also the total gospel. In other words, it's one thing to say Christ is fundamental, but it's a completely another thing. It's a whole other thing to say that he is... All of the gospel. He's not just fundamental. He is the gospel. He is everything. And so said in another way, anything in addition to Christ is not only making a feeble attempt at adding to the gospel, but it's diminishing the gospel to the point of powerlessness. There's no room for anything else but Jesus in the gospel because he alone is the gospel's essence, glory, aim, and hope. And so Christ is the point of everything. Reformers sought to rid the church of the godless idea that another human mediator is necessary for the atonement of sin. Luther and others understood that Christ alone is the high priest. And for that, that very reason, humankind can approach the Father through the righteousness of the Son. So the third part of the five solas is perhaps, I would say, the most vital because even grace is offered through Christ alone and faith is in Christ alone additionally scripture points to Christ alone and the glory of God alone is revealed through Christ alone so Christ is central to everything and he can and that can never be overstated so in Christ alone God's people are saved in Christ alone God is glorified And in Christ alone, Christians are regenerated and radically transformed. And in Christ alone, the hope of humankind is placed. So the doctrine of Solus Christus is evident throughout Scripture. Two primary factors are apparent in revealing this doctrine. Number one... Christ's co-equality and co-eternal nature with both the Father and the Spirit, and number two, Christ's preeminence in the totality of Scripture. Both of these variables suggest a gospel that is centered around Christ, that begins with Christ and that ends with Christ, and Christ alone is imperative for all Christians. Without trusting in the truth of Christ alone, you can't be a part of God's kingdom. So the gospel is from Christ alone, through Christ alone, and to the glory of Christ alone. Solus Christus. So let let me get to these two imperatives that I mentioned. Number one, Christ alone. Co-equal and co-eternal in Trinitarian union. So the doctrine of Solus Christus views Jesus Christ not only as the human mediator between God and humankind, but as God himself. Certainly Christ is the human atonement for all sinfulness of the church. Jesus, nonetheless, is also God himself. Because in the Trinitarian union with both the Father and the Spirit, Jesus the Son exists as co-equal and co-eternal. And so to profess Christ alone is to realize Christ's position not only as high priest, but also as God the Creator. So Jesus stands as the ever-sufficient atonement for the sins of his people because his nature is vastly disparate from that of any human the, the miraculous virgin birth itself is a testament to the difference in Christ's nature as well as the effectiveness of his atoning sacrifice. There's a popular evangelical preacher in recent years that confessed uh, around Easter time. He said that it is more important to believe in the resurrection than the virgin birth. But, hear me, if the Bible is 100% true, and I, it is, so I should say since the Bible is 100% true— Without the virgin birth, we we must believe in the virgin birth, first of all. Since scripture is true, we must believe in the virgin birth. Believing in the Bible and its total truth is orthodox Christianity. You are not an orthodox Christian if you say that any part of that scripture is not true. And so, since it is true, the virgin birth happened, we must believe it. Without, okay, here's, here's a good reason. Without the virgin birth, Christ would have been born no different than any other human being. And what I'm talking about there is conceived in sin, as Psalm 51.5 says. And so by being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus' pure and holy nature is exhibited. So someone conceived and born in sin couldn't stand as the righteous atonement for the sin of humanity. Christ was conceived in holiness. And you may say, well, someone who is born and hasn't yet sinned. No, that's not how it works. We are conceived in sin. We are sinners by nature. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners by nature. In fact, Apart from Christ, all we do every millisecond of every single day is sin, period. And so Jesus Christ was conceived in holiness. And so equally as the Father and the Spirit, as equally as holy as the Father and the Holy Spirit, Jesus lived in, in among humans on earth as a human so that the filth of his people can be, could be placed on him in his righteous nature. And so the, the incarnation is a necessary aspect to the gospel, because without an unblemished one who was made like the rest of humanity, and yet without sin, an adequate sacrifice would not be possible. And so a great mystery of the gospel is this, is, in this consideration is, is this. Not only the humanity of Jesus, but his deity. And, and, and those, those are compatible, but yet difficult to understand. You might say, well, of course he was perfect. He was God. Yes, but he was also human, faced every trial as we face. So Jesus has existed as God from eternity past, albeit not in his incarnate state, but he will perpetually be God without exception. So, he is God, and he's equal to the Father, but he emptied himself, and he became a servant, and he died for his people. Philippians 2, 1-11, through 11, as Paul discusses. So, Jesus' equality to the Father during his time on earth was not such to warrant disobedience to the Father. Mysteriously, Jesus is equal to the Father. So To profess Solus Christus is to profess that any other way perceived by humankind is not only flawed, but consummately wrong. Some people get upset about saying that another religion is wrong. But to say that it's not wrong is wrong. To say that that there are many ways to God is blatantly false. It is a lie. And so in an era... Where society and most people don't want to point out flaws with the facade of not judging others, really. People often err on the side of damning people rather than mercifully loving them by pointing to their grave errors. Open-mindedness is good in many situations, but the truth is usually narrow. It's not wide. When you think about mathematical truth, 2 plus 2, it's 4. I mean, truth is usually narrow. There's not a wide approach. Christians should unapologetically point to Christ as the only way and subsequently offer a swift argument that any other perceived way is wrong and do so without apology. Jesus himself declares that he is the I Am. He is also the Messiah declared by the prophets. Isaiah 53, written over seven centuries before Christ, references in a striking manner the the Messiah who was rejected by his own people and was bruised and crushed for the transgressions of his people. So the prophet Isaiah references the, the humility and the simplicity of the Messiah. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. He was despised and rejected by men. Think about the miraculous birth of Christ. He was not born in a king's palace, but in the stable, a humble stable likely of, of Joseph's family, so Paul alludes to Jesus' humility in the second chapter of his letter to the Philippians, offering an apparent connection between the prophet Isaiah's description of the Messiah and Jesus. Isaiah mentions the Messiah bearing the griefs of his own people in Isaiah 53, 4. And this is precisely what Jesus would do and what he alone could do because nothing else would satisfy the wrath of the Father but the unblemished offering of his own Son. The irony is that God himself bore the wrath of himself for his people. Here's something that, that I heard one time somebody say. says, if you're a Christian, you are saved from God, from just his wrath, or, or from his just wrath. You are saved by God, by his sacrifice. And you are saved for God, for his delight and praise. You are saved from God, by God, and for God. Amazing. Isaiah says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Isaiah fifty three ten. God's will was not to spare himself. In other words, his son, but for him to satisfy his demand for an offering of atonement. And Paul discusses the purpose of the law in Romans 3 and says that through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law's purpose then is to reveal... To humanity, the need for a savior, many profess that Christ alone saves, but effectively dismiss this truth in practice. This comes into play when someone commits perhaps a heinous crime or act, and how often people who profess Christ alone stoop to the level of the former Catholic Church in Luther's day by claiming that there is a special place in hell for someone who commits a heinous act. I've heard that so many times by professing Christians. There is a special place in hell for that person. This thought is subconsciously born from an underlying and false belief that works play a part in salvation. If Christ alone is to be the declaration of believers, our works, or lack thereof, should play no key in thoughts toward him or her. And so... When we think about Christ and what he has done and the way, the only way to salvation, if we truly believe that salvation is in Christ alone, we cannot profess these things that that hint at works, that there's a special place in hell for people who commit heinous acts. Think about this. The most heinous acts that you can think of, whatever they may be, and there are those that have committed very very heinous acts and uh, later came to know christ think about this that there are certainly situations where those people who committed those acts who maybe spent their lives in prison or, or even received the death penalty whatever it may be that they will one day spend eternity with christ and even the very officers who arrested them will not some of them that, 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 is, that should show you how irrelevant works are to salvation. It is in Christ alone. Earthly justice should be served when an atrocious wrong is committed, but such a wrong has no bearing on someone's salvation or Christ's desire to save that person. In the Old Testament, animal sacrifice was necessary for the atonement of sin. Jesus himself became the, the atoning sacrifice. Even in the Old Testament, though, with animal sacrifice, Jesus himself was the object of faith. The New Testament narrative looks back to the cross. The Old Testament narrative looks forward to the cross. Both, however, look to the cross. Even in the Old, in the old Covenant, Christ alone is the one for whom God's people yearned animal sacrifice could not continue because it was not permanent nor effective the new covenant in christ is better no matter how much christians confess christ alone the the nature of flesh tends to believe that somehow christ is not enough and it's false it's wrong but in other words somehow we believe good works should still be involved somehow some way even though we know what scripture says but it's not Get over it. Works are not in any way present for salvation. And someone who is changed by Christ will reveal spiritual fruit, certainly. But these good works don't play a role in salvation, nor does someone who fails in their Christian walk lose their salvation. Because Christ alone has saved them and will eternally save them. Solus Christus is the unmitigated center, focal point, and the boundary of Scripture's narrative. Scripture, the prophets, and Christian history revolve around the person of Christ alone. Christ and anything or anyone else is futile. Christ alone is necessary. He is the all-encompassing Christ alone. He's the biblical underpinning of Christianity. The Apostle Paul makes clear that the Son is preeminent in all things, Colossians 1. So it's Christ who is the point of the gospel. He is the source of the gospel. He is the subject of the gospel and the object of the gospel. And to add anything to Christ is counterproductive because it effectively falsifies the gospel and therefore destroys its intended power. Christ alone saves his people and there is no other way but through him. So Christ was discussed in my previous uh, podcast. I'm going to clarify and clear this up a little bit. I discussed him as the, the vehicle, or what I intended to do was discuss him as the vehicle uh, in, in that analogy. So here's what I mean by that. Uh, Christ is the vehicle. Salvation is achieved only by the grace of God, which is given through faith, the road, in Christ, the vehicle. And so any other source will explicitly fail. I hope I cleared that up, that uh, what I meant was um, salvation is achieved by the grace of God, which is given through faith, As that's the road, and in Christ, that he's the vehicle. Uh, hopefully that analogy is cleared up a little bit, but any other source will fail. The Reformers understood that Christ alone is necessary and made sure that, to abandon human-made devices that will ultimately lead to destruction. And that's what we need to do as well. In our modern society, even professing believers are often found putting trust in other, so-thought-reliable sources. Uh, For example, government, retirement accounts, education, family, and even ministers of the gospel. All of these are guaranteed to fail. Christ's unique nature is both God and human, allows him to sympathize with his people. He has faced every temptation known to humanity, but he has done so without sin. He is co-equal and co-eternal with both the Father and the Spirit. Jesus alone is the mediator between God and his people, so that when the Father beholds the church, he sees the beautiful righteousness of the Son. The prophets and the entire narrative of Scripture testify to the Christocentrality of everything. In him, all things hold together. Everything was made by him, for him, through him. Jesus, therefore, is preeminent alone. Solus Christus expresses both the simplicity and the complexity of the gospel in its most fundamental and yet most complete sense. So said, this, said another way, while Christ is the foundation of the gospel, he is also the entire gospel. And while many will be tempted to preach someone or something else or to shy from biblical truth, only one has the power to radically transform lives. Jesus is the answer to all issues and to all who seek wisdom. For answers, it is Christ alone. For hope, it's Christ alone. For security, it's Christ alone. And for eternal salvation, it is and it will ever be Christ alone. Solus Christus. The cry of not only the Reformation but believers throughout the centuries, throughout all of church history. So thank you for listening today. I hope this has been encouraging as I have discussed Christ alone, Solus Christus, and I just want to thank you for listening to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones.